bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 22, 2011. This week, I'll update listeners on the latest developments in the ongoing federal budget battle. Then, I'll move to new market tax credit news where I'll share some of the highlights of the congressional briefing that I attended last week. The briefing was organized by the New Market Tax Credit Coalition. In this week's historic tax credit session, I'll discuss efforts by the preservation community to address certain policy concerns regarding the development standards for historic properties. Turning to long-housing tax credit matters, I'll examine the findings of a recent article that was published by the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas that discusses the effect of long-housing tax credit development on nearby schools. And finally, in the Renewable Energy segment, I'll review several important pieces of legislation introduced in recent weeks, pieces of legislation that have Renewable Energy Tax Credit provisions. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general news this week, we start with what happened last week on Friday. President Obama signed another continuing resolution. The resolution, known by its acronym CR, extends funding for the federal government for another three weeks through Friday, April 8th. The CR cut $6 billion when compared to fiscal year 2010 funding levels. These cuts are in addition to the $4 billion in decreases that were included in the previous CR, which expired on March 18th. Negotiations are continuing on a bill that would fund the federal government through the end of the federal government's fiscal year, which ends on September 30th. Details regarding these negotiations, however, have not been released. Congress is on recess this week, and when members of Congress return next week, they'll have two weeks to take the next step in the funding process. The next step will be either another short-term CR or a bill that does fund the federal government through September 30, 2011. Turning to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, earlier this month, HUD released an overview of the use of Recovery Act programs in urban areas. The report covers various programs administered by HUD, the Department of Energy, and others. It examines the effect that the programs have had in urban areas over the last two years. HUD reports that as of late 2010, federal agencies had obligated almost 40% or $190 billion of all Recovery Act funding to urban areas. Developers have used Recovery Act programs, such as the Tax Credit Assistance Program, or TCAP, to build energy-efficient affordable housing in urban areas. Although it was originally projected that about 10% of TCAP's $2.25 billion would be used for green construction, preliminary estimates indicate that a much higher percentage has actually been realized. One of the environmentally friendly developments that have used TCAP funds is City Arts Apartments in Baltimore, Maryland. The $13 million development used $2.6 million in TCAP funds to complete 69 units of green and energy-efficient affordable housing, along with ground floor performance and gallery space. Developers have also used Section 1603 Renewable Energy Tax Credit Grants to install renewable energy projects in urban areas. Through the end of last year, Treasury's Section 1603 program has provided at least 
$142 million to renewable energy projects in cities via cash payments in lieu of the tax credits. Solar projects have received $123 million in cash payments, the most of any project type for cities. The report also includes a chart that shows the remaining approximately $19 million in Section 1603 cash grants that, that urban projects have received. You can check out the Journal of Tax Credits if you want to learn more about developments throughout the country that are benefiting from Recovery Act programs. And if you have specific questions about either the Section 1602 or the Section 1603 cash grant programs, please contact my partner, Tony Grappone. He's in our Boston office. In New Market Tax Credit news, last week I attended the New Market Tax Credit Coalition's congressional briefing. At the briefing, Coalition President Annie Donovan presented the group's 10th anniversary report on the New Markets Tax Credit. Congressman Pat Tiberi, a member of the House Ways and Means Committee and chair of the Select Revenue Measures Subcommittee, spoke about the positive work in low-income communities that has been accomplished with the New Markets Tax Credit. Congressman Richie Neal, who is also a member of the Ways and Means Committee and ranking member of the Select Revenue Measures Subcommittee, also spoke at the event. During his remarks, Congressman Neal stated a desire to make the New Market Tax Credit a long-term program and avoid these short-term extensions. A copy of the New Market Tax Credit Coalition's 10th anniversary report can be found online at www.nmtccoalition.org. Turning to New Market Tax Credit mapping, Novogratz and Company has just put the final touches on a new mapping tool for the New Market Tax Credit program. Users can search for New Market Tax Credit qualifying census tracts by street address, county, state, congressional district, school districts, or metro areas. The tool also allows you to select various data layers to display on the map. These layers include specific indicia of distress and other eligibility criteria. There's even an option to display indicators as to where CDE investments have already been made. Now, please note that the data presented in the map are provided as a reference, and the validity of the data cannot be guaranteed. All data should always be verified with the CDFI Fund website before using it in the decision-making process. This QCT mapping tool is presented on the New Market Tax Credit Resource Center website with the compliments of Novogratz and Company. Simply go to www.newmarketstaxcredit.com and click on the button that says NMTC Mapping Tools. Or you can go to the Resources menu and choose the link that says Maps and Data Tables. Please take a look and please share your comments with us. And if you have any particular questions or comments that you want to deliver in person, please contact my partner Brad Elphick. He's in our Atlanta, Georgia office. He also heads up the New Market Tax Credit Working Group. We hope you find the tool useful, and we do look forward to your comments as we try to find ways to make the tool even more useful. Turning to historic tax credits, I'd like to return to a topic that I mentioned last week. Congressman Brian Higgins recently sent a letter to the National Park Service regarding the interpretation of regulations that govern historic tax credit properties. As most of our listeners know, the National Park Service is responsible for approving a project's eligibility to claim historic tax credits. In a statement released earlier this month, Congressman Higgins said that local business leaders were frustrated by the process and they've shared their exasperation with him over certain Park Service policies. While the Congressman's letter to the Park Service was prompted by a particular development project, it does touch on a broader policy issue 
an issue of importance to the broader historic tax credit community. Specifically, historic tax credit professionals indicate that the policy held by the National Park Service regarding multiple building complexes can cause some difficulty for developers during the rehabilitation process when those buildings are owned by more than one taxpayer. The issue is not explicitly addressed in the statute that governs the historic tax credit program. As such, it is an example of a quandary that the preservation community occasionally faces when a practice or policy falls outside of the scope of written regulations. The Historic Tax Credit Coalition, of which Novograd and Company is a member, is working to help resolve this issue and other similar policy points. The Historic Tax Credit Coalition was created back in 2009 to support the tax credit by educating members of Congress about the benefits of the program, as well as to show how unified industry support for making additional critical changes to the credit. One way the group does this is by communicating with the National Park Service and the IRS on technical and policy issues. If you want to learn more about the Historic Tax Credit Coalition, please call Michael Hansen at 202-742-4407 or send him an email at hansen at thec2group.com. You can also meet Michael in person in Cleveland next month. Michael's a featured speaker at our Historic Tax Credit Conference that is being held in Cleveland, Ohio. It's on April 7th and 8th. To learn more about the conference, simply go to our website, at www.novico.com and go to the events section. In low-income housing tax credit news, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas recently published an interesting article about the effect that low-income housing tax credit development has on the school systems in the districts where the housing is built. In the article, the authors, Wen Hua Di and James C. Murdoch, note that homeowners in more affluent areas often resist low-income housing tax credit developments in their neighborhoods, citing concerns that new residents will flood public schools and crowd classrooms. There are also worries that adding more low-income pupils to struggling schools in poor areas may overburden educators and facilities. In their article, the authors report that Texas allocated approximately $750 million in tax credits to developers from 1989 to mid-2009, creating almost 200,000 affordable housing units. 90% of the units were reserved for low-income residents. They also report that approximately 9% of Texas elementary schools have nearby LIHTC properties, each averaging 324 units. To find whether the construction adversely affects neighborhood schools, the authors turned to year-to-year changes in the accountability ratings of public elementary schools closest to the low-income housing, and they found that ratings remained unchanged over a one-year period for most schools. Some of the schools moved up or down one level, but very few moved two or more levels in their accountability ratings. As such, the authors write that LHDC projects don't necessarily adversely affect school systems. The complete article can be found online at www.dallasfed.org. Turning to broader national rental housing news, HUD's Office of Policy Development Research has added an affordable rental housing partnerships page to the HUD user website. The new section of the website provides resources and strategies aimed at the preservation of affordable rental housing. HUD says this new section is intended to assist public sector housing agencies, 
individuals working at the state and local levels, and federal agency staff at the regional and local levels. More particularly, the new page is intended to help these constituencies form or enhance collaborative partnerships. On the site, HUD highlights innovative partnerships focused on this goal in four key states, Minnesota, Ohio, Washington, and Oregon. The website gathers experiences and examples of tools that facilitate collaborative efforts to alleviate the affordable rental housing crisis, such as affordable housing databases, joint compliance monitoring, and coordination of multiple funding sources. There are also links to other websites that provide additional information on efforts to improve, create, or foster collaborative partnerships. These new pages can be found online at www.hudduser.org. Simply click on the button that says State and Local Affordable Rental Housing Partnerships. We close this week with Renewable Energy Tax Credit news. On March 10th, Congressman Mac Thornberry introduced a bill to extend the production tax credit for wind energy for 10 years. The bill, H.R. 1023, is also known as the No More Excuses Energy Act of 2011. The bill would extend the production tax credit from its current sunset date of January 1, 2013 through January 1, 2023. Other provisions of the bill would, among other things, expand fossil fuel drilling on federal lands and in Alaska and the Gulf Coast, encourage natural gas production, reduce taxes on nuclear power plants, and prevent the Environmental Protection Agency from regulating greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. The bill has been referred to several committees, namely the Committee on Natural Resources, the Committee on Ways and Means, and the Committee on Energy and Commerce. Congressman Thornberry described the bill as an all-of-the-above energy plan to reduce dependence on foreign energy sources and increase production in the United States. Congressman Thornberry has introduced similar bills in 2009 and 2007. Both of these bills have died in committee. And then in the Senate last week, on March 15th, Senator Sherrod Brown introduced legislation to renew the Section 48 Cap C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit Program. It's known as the Security and Energy Manufacturing, or SEAM, or the SEAM Act. It would renew the Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit Program. And this is the program that provides investment tax credits equal to 30% of the qualifying costs of facilities that manufacture certain energy equipment. To be eligible for the tax credit, manufacturers must produce solar, wind, and geothermal energy equipment, or fuel cells, or microturbines and batteries. Other types of property that qualify are electric cars, electric grids, energy conservation technologies, and equipment that captures and sequesters carbon dioxide or reduces greenhouse gas emissions. The SEAM Act is co-sponsored by Senators Debbie Stabenow, Maria Cantwell, and Bob Casey. Currently, 70% of clean energy components are manufactured outside of the United States. A number of eligible projects applied for Section 48 Cap-C funding and were, not, were denied in the last round due to a lack of funds. The Department of Energy reports that the program was oversubscribed by more than three times. Nationwide, the Department of Energy determined that there were 418 projects that were eligible but did not receive funds. This amounted to about $5.8 billion 
and unfunded eligible applications. Senator Brown noted that these manufacturers are waiting in the pipeline and would be ready to break ground on their manufacturing facilities soon after they receive funding. Now turning to the state level, the Idaho legislature is considering a moratorium on wind development. A bill to declare a two-year moratorium on wind development was introduced to the Idaho legislature earlier this week. The bill, HB 265, would ban, yes ban, the approval and construction of industrial wind farms and turbines until July 13, 2013. Until that date, an interim legislative committee would study various wind-related issues. These issues include the effects of wind development on wildlife and the ability of the state's electrical utilities to integrate wind power. The committee would then provide recommendations to update the Idaho Energy Plan. The moratorium could also extend to wind projects that are already developed but have not yet received all the required permits from municipalities. You can find a copy of the bill online at www.energytaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. Between now and then, I'd encourage you to follow me on Twitter. Also, check out my blog. It's at www.novogradic.wordpress.com. My recent blog post comments on a recent Accounting Today opinion piece that perpetuates some of the recent misrepresentations regarding the new market tax credit. I invite you to read the blog posting and share your thoughts with me on the topic. Until next week, this is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.